This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today, we are interviewing Noel Brizuela, who's a Ph.D. candidate, a fellow at Scripps Institute of Oceanography in San Diego, California. Uh, Scripps is a... Uh, part of UC San Diego. So welcome, Noel. It's great to be talking with you. We're going to learn a lot about the oceans today, aren't we? Uh, Yeah, I hope so, Jay. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Okay, so Noel, uh, oceanography, like the oceans, uh, it's a huge subject to cover, and Scripps has a wide range of research arenas in the oceans of the world and the marine life that's in those oceans, but you specialize in the physical changes that are going on in the ocean. And uh, those changes are being heavily influenced by climate change. So what attracted, how did you get into the subject? What areas do you specialize in your study and your research? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. That oceanography is a huge, uh, vast subject. Here at Scripps, we have people who study things ranging from biology, from you know, macrofauna down to viruses and bacteria. I, you know, as, as you said, I study the physical side of things. And what attracted me to the field was a set of coincidences, maybe. Um, but when I was back in my undergraduate working in college, I, I was studying physics. And I went on a backpacking trip, actually, to Alaska. And when I was going around Alaska, hiking and seeing all these amazing, pristine valleys and mountains, I was just so impressed with all that the planet has to offer, but most of us never look at those places, right? Those remote areas that are rarely touched by humans. So that trip got me really curious about what else is out there in the in the planet that we're never looking at, uh-huh. and the oceans really are the best example of a natural area that is seldom looked at by most people. So in your research and your study, do you, do you work uh, mostly with data or do you get out and, and actually are you essentially in a, in a field excursion uh, to study the oceans? Do you go on board ship uh, and, and do studies that way or how do you go about it? Yeah. So the most important sort of raw material that I work with is, uh, observations of the ocean. This means we'll go in a ship and we'll deploy instruments off the side of the ship, or sometimes we'll deploy also autonomous floats or robots that go around the ocean and measure things like currents, temperature, and salinity. And then we get that data back and we sit in an office, or I sit in an office for a long time and try to make sense of it. Uh-huh. And, you know, I sometimes, yeah, so the base of my work are those direct observations, but then I also use a combination of models and uh, satellite data and theory to make sense of it all. Do you uh, form principally in the Pacific Ocean, or do you go further afield than that? My work so far has focused in the Philippine Sea, so that's the Western Pacific and that's, you know, that's where the biggest hurricanes in the planet happen. But people from Scripps, people who work across the hall from me, they, they work all around the planet. 
from Antarctica to Greenland and the Indian Ocean, really everywhere. So I assume you've noticed some changes going on in the oceans. What's the length of your experience uh, working on this subject? I've been working in oceanography for about eight years now, since I first started doing research on it. Uh And yeah, I mean, this has been really, oceanography has changed a lot, as much as the ocean has, because it's so difficult to go out there and get quality data. But the more data we get, the more we're realizing that the ocean is changing. You know, the ocean's absorbing about 90% of all the excess heat that's trapped in the planet due to global warming. So that excess heat is driving uh, changes of all sorts from chemistry to biology and also what I focus on, the currents of the ocean and how those interact with the atmosphere. So I assume that when you go out on board ship, you've got colleagues who are studying different aspects of what's going on in the oceans? Yeah, just, you know, the fact that it's so expensive to go out on ships means that most of the time when we're out there, we do our best effort to have to have the opportunity to benefit as many people as possible. So sometimes we'll go out and we'll get a handful of, uh, we'll deploy an instrument or get some samples for someone who studied something completely different, but is just taking advantage of the fact that we're there already. And that contact really has helped uh, or helps everyone at Scripps and similar institutions just be aware of the variety of topics in oceanography that are important for, for society. Does Scripps Institute have its own uh, ships that take you out, or do you uh, piggyback on somebody else's? <laughs> That's a great question. So Scripps has three or four main ships, but Scripps is part of an organization called UNOS that essentially has the main oceanographic institutions in the U.S. They share their resources. They share their ships with each other. So if, you know, if I want to do a a research project, say, in the Bay of Bengal, east of India, then I can see whenever I want my project to happen, if there's any of those U.S.-operated ships that will be nearby, I can ask UNOS to book, say, a ship that belongs to the university or that is operated to the University of Washington. It doesn't have to be through Scripps directly. So that, again, that sharing of resources is crucial to do oceanography. So what kind of equipment do you use to uh, measure changes going on in the oceans? Well, I think satellites are crucial. Also, there's there's a program called Argo that is largely operated out of Scripps. And Argo is a set of almost 4,000 autonomous floats. These are sensors that that change their buoyancy, so they, they will go back and forth between the surface of the ocean and 2,000 meters depth every 10 days. And when they go up and when they go down, they will take measurements of temperature, salinity, and, and pressure, and they'll send those via satellite. Uh, so Argo has been arguably the the most important oceanographic observational project that we we've had so aside from that when we go out in ships one of the the specialties of the research group that i'm in which is the multi-scale ocean dynamics group we're very interested in turbulence and very small scale processes that happen in the ocean so that 
to measure that turbulence, we use either temperature sensors or uh, something called shear probes that measure at very high frequencies. Say they they give us a hundred measurements per second, wow. and wow. yeah, we we use those to really understand those super tiny fluctuations in the internal structure of the ocean, and we use that to infer how how heat and salinity are being mm. transferred between different layers of water. So the salinity of the oceans is not uniform. It uh, it changes. Is that right? It, it, yes, it does change. And actually, there's there's this um, concept in oceanography of a water mass. So a water mass is essentially the the distinctive combination of temperature and salinity of a of a piece of you know the volume of water and those two change change together depending where you are in the ocean mm-hmm. and knowing the temperature and salinity of 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 ocean water you can typically get a pretty good idea of where that water comes from so for example um water near the bottom of the ocean around antarctica will have a super high salinity um because it uh, so much of its water freezes to to become part of the sea ice around Antarctica. So if you take out the water, but you don't take out the salt, then you're left, your residue is uh, sort of briny, briny water that then becomes super dense, and that's why it goes to the bottom of the ocean around Antarctica. Um, so yes, the temperature and salinity variations in seawater are, uh, you know, they're one of the more important pieces of information that oceanographers have to to understand changes in the ocean and also to understand the ocean structure itself. I think uh, you told me that uh, one of the areas you study is the waves that are going on in the oceans. So there, there are surface waves and subsurface waves, and you specialize in studying subsurface waves. So how are they? How do they differ from one another? Hmm. You know, it's, it's funny. Surface waves, we've we've all seen them. Um, they're you know they crash in the in the beaches and people surf them, etc. Subsurface waves, they are different but but kind of the same. And what I mean by that is, subsurface waves they exist and they propagate along um, density gradients. So say if you have Warm water that's light and, and lies above cold water that is dense, then in the interface between those two layers of water, you can have a, a wave propagating. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is very similar to the surface waves is that surface waves are propagating in that in the interface between dense fluid and light fluid, the light fluid being the atmosphere. So the difference with subsurface waves is that because the difference in density between layers of seawater is smaller, their propagation speeds will be much slower. So, for example, one of those waves maybe will propagate at three meters per second, whereas a surface wave in the beach can go much faster. The other important aspect of these waves is that they preserve their energy much better than surface waves or it's more difficult to make them break 
And also, the, the size of these waves is much bigger. So in observations, we've seen waves as big as 500 meters from the bottom to the top of the wave, whereas we don't ever see that in surface ocean waves. And what is it that uh, produces these subsurface waves? I would assume that tectonic movements on the ocean plates have some effect on them, but other than that, uh, what other forces are present that influence them? So perhaps some of the main generators of these subsurface waves are variations in the wind. So, for example, uh, El Nino and so, which, you know, it's uh, essentially a sloshing of warm water from the western to the eastern Pacific, that El Nino works via subsurface waves that are tied to the strength of the winds over the equatorial Pacific. So winds is a big one. When you have a storm, for example, that will generate a different type of wave called near-inertial waves. But you can also have subsurface waves generated, for example, by tides. When tides flow over a submarine ridge or when they hit the continental shelf and they essentially have this whole column of water that's moving with the tide and then that water needs to squeeze into a shallower ocean, that will create upward and downward motions that then develop into being a wave that propagates into into beaches. And actually, if anyone is in a coastal area I would encourage them to go out and look at the ocean. Sometimes you'll see clear stripes of differences in the roughness of the ocean surface, and that typically indicates that there's a subsurface wave propagating underneath. So waves are different than ocean currents. Is that right? They are, yeah. So ocean waves, they have ocean currents as part of them, essentially oscillating ocean currents that move the water back and forth to shape the wave and to let it propagate. But generally, when oceanographers talk about ocean currents, they generally mean these large-scale sort of channels where water flows typically in, in a single direction. And these you know, currents, for example, they can be the, the Gulf Stream that flows from Florida up to the Maryland area and then branches off to the North Atlantic or, you know, that's one of the big ocean currents that receive a lot of attention. And then there's also this complex equatorial current system. So there's, yeah, generally when oceanographers say ocean currents, they refer to these, to these currents that are more almost permanent or that have a certain predictable seasonality to them and that those are essentially the main mechanism for transfer of energy and heat in the ocean, uh, at least horizontally. So are ocean currents changing over the period of time you've been doing observations? They definitely have, and they're really changing in, in many different ways. Um, as I said earlier, most of the heat that's entered the planet due to global warming has been stored in the ocean. So that's changed its temperature, and temperature is the ocean's main currency. So one of the changes that, that excess temperature has caused in the oceans is that the, the, the excess temperature in the ocean is mostly concentrated in the uppermost 500 meters or so, um, and that has 
accelerated. Models and observations have shown that that extra heat has accelerated surface currents, made them uh, flow more rapidly because it has sort of squeezed the upper ocean into a, a, a tighter um, region uh, because because we're adding so much extra heat on the surface that it's changing the stratification. Another way in which the ocean currents are changing is when the you know the temperature changes in the ocean, they are not evenly distributed throughout the planet. So when you change the temperature of a part of the ocean more than another, that will change the surface winds that help drive the currents, and that will in turn change the, the structure and strength of those currents. So we've seen big pieces of polar ice breaking now into the oceans because the ice is melting. Is there any, any real impact of this polar ice that's falling into the oceans uh, on the temperatures that, of the water? Yes, there is. So there's a handful of ways in which polar ice impacts the ocean. First, you have the discharge of meltwater from ice sheets that flows into the ocean. And that's the contribution that's been studied more closely. That essentially is, well, there's a two-way interaction, right? Because the ocean is warming. It's making the polar ice melt more rapidly. But then when that ice melts more rapidly, it's adding more and more fresh water that is very cold to the seawater. So that's essentially changing the interface between ocean and ice, whether it happens at terminus of a glacier or whether it happens around a big iceberg that's broken off and flown out to the ocean. But changes in that interface between the ocean and the ice is changing the way in which these two big elements of the Earth system interact. And it's it's a big uncertain piece in the puzzle of how the future planet's going to change, right? We don't, we can't with full certainty know how ice caps are going to evolve if we don't know what the ocean is currently doing to them, let alone knowing what the future ocean will look like and what it will, how it will impact ice caps say, 30 or 50 years from now. So what is it that causes the ocean temperatures to rise uh, overall? Yeah, so it's global warming. And what global warming is, is a that because of anthropogenic emissions of, of greenhouse gases, the atmosphere has become more opaque to the thermal radiation emitted by the Earth's surface. Mm. So... You know, it's it's sort of like putting a blanket over the planet. And, you know, that extra heat is initially stored in the atmosphere, but the ocean and the atmosphere are, they're always interacting. They're exchanging energy and they're exchanging heat. And so greenhouse gases, they, they absorb this extra heat. They warm up the atmosphere. And then when the atmosphere interacts with the ocean, the atmosphere is warmer than it was before, so it has a little extra heat to get to the ocean. And because seawater is so much more dense, a thousand times heavier than air, it can hold so much more heat. So most of the atmospheric heat ends up being deposited in the ocean. So I don't know if this is in your field, but uh, we've heard that coral reefs are being affected by ocean water, whether that's rising temperature or currents or 
uh, what it is. I'm not sure. Uh, can you shed any light on that? Yes. So, you know, this is not my main area of specialty, but what I've gathered is the corals need a specific temperature range to be healthy, and they also need a specific range of acidity in the water to be healthy. There's a longer list of chemical conditions under which corals thrive, but temperature and acidity are, are two main ones. Corals can be harmed by water that's too warm if they're not used to those temperatures, mm-hmm. but also as you heat up the water, it changes its ability to dissolve carbonates, which determine the acidity. So changing the temperature, as, you know, as, as I said earlier, temperature is the main currency of the ocean. So you change temperature and then many other chemical properties of the water are going to change in concert. So the worry nowadays is that we're seeing more and more events of extreme ocean temperatures. And when corals are, are exposed to these, they're at risk of being damaged. There's more and more research going into all the mechanisms that regulate temperature over coral reefs. So really the players in action and over any coral reef are going to vary largely given the time of the year and also the topography around that place. But yeah, it's an important thing to keep an eye on for for humanity if we want to preserve them because coral reefs are tremendously beneficial habitat for countless species that find protection from currents there. You know, fishes like to fish like to aggregate around structure mm. and coral reefs provide that. That provides uh, that helps them feed themselves and that also helps them be protected from environmental hazards and uh, predators. I'm sure you do some modeling of what is uh, going to happen in the future. So I'm just wondering, is there a tipping point when rising temperatures are going to be out of control? You know, the concept of a tipping point is is complicated. And maybe some people talk about those, but I, you know, I'd like to think, and the, the equations of ocean dynamics show us that the ocean and the atmosphere have many mechanisms to adapt to different conditions, mm-hmm. right? Perhaps one of the more important, you know, rather than a tipping point, I would consider it a regime shift, is people are afraid that if human emissions stay at current levels, somewhere between 2050 and 2090, we could see a sharp decrease in the formation of deep waters in the Labrador Sea. Mm. You know, that's a scary regime shift because the formation of those deep waters is a crucial mechanism that keeps the upper ocean and the deep ocean communicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we warm up the upper ocean too much, then we're not going to have that. The water in the Labrador Sea is not going to become cold and heavy enough to sink to the bottom of the ocean. So if we cut that communication channel, uh, which some models suggest could happen, then we would really see a, an important shift in the behaviors of the ocean. There's an interaction between the oceans and the atmosphere above it. So I think one of the areas you look at is tropical climates and how tropical climate is affected by rising ocean temperatures. Uh, yes. You know, I, I specialize in extreme tropical weather and how that interacts with the ocean. The most relatable example perhaps are hurricanes 
you know, hurricanes, these massive storms, they get most of their energy they get from the heat stored in the upper ocean. Mm-hmm. So as wind blows over the ocean, it evaporates seawater that then adds moisture and adds heat to the atmosphere, and that creates a sort of hot air balloon effect in the in the atmosphere that creates big clouds and brings, you know, and drives the rain. And it's a sort of uh, self-propelling mechanism that, under the right conditions, keep those storms strengthening and strengthening. And, yeah, you know, as we change the surface temperature of the ocean, the wind patterns that impact the formation of those storms are going to change, and also the, the heat available to power those storms is is going to increase. The intuitive answer that a lot of people have tried to jump to is that a warmer ocean is necessarily going to mean that we're going to have more and more hurricanes. But there's a lot of debate around that question. And depending on how you slice the data, how you form your statistics, you're probably going to get a different answer. What seems to be certain for now, or maybe not certain, but most likely for now, is that as the ocean keeps warming, greater fraction of the hurricanes we see is going to have a higher intensity. So we're going to see more and more Category 4s and Category 5s. But then, you know, the question of whether these hurricanes, these stronger hurricanes are going to make it, are going to make landfall at the same rate or a higher rate, that's a completely different question. So, yeah, the whole hurricanes are, are, are very important to climate and they're impacted by the ocean temperature, but they are a very tricky question when it comes to trying to assess how that activity will change under global warming. Bill Gates has uh, made some proposals in regard to controlling climate change. I'm just wondering if there is anything, any kind of research that is being done or proposals being explored that can stabilize ocean temperatures? Well, the most direct solution is going to be cutting anthropogenic emissions of CO2 and methane. Yeah, so I think, you know, that that's our bread and butter solution to climate change and to rising temperatures. Mm-hmm. Aside from that, there are interesting proposals that try to get every possible element of the Earth system involved. So, you know, uh, there's a big one, there's a nice Netflix documentary called Kiss the Ground, and I, I recommend that everyone listening goes and checks out at least the trailer. But this documentary deals with a proposal that essentially suggests that changing agricultural and forestry practices can turn the ground, land, into a bigger carbon sink than it currently is, and that will help take CO2 out of the atmosphere and bury it underground. Now, that's a way to stabilize climate and reduce atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases. That would be a great secondary effort, you know, besides cutting emissions. There's also a lot of work being done on blue carbon, which usually involves growing seaweed or growing kelp in coastal areas because the growth of that seaweed and, and kelp requires increased absorption of CO2 by the ocean. So there's there's a lot of investment pouring into both of those options and, and many other similar ones that are trying to get 
CO2 out of the atmosphere. Would you but I'm personally most excited about proposals that really try to get other natural systems involved in solving the climate crisis. Uh-huh. Would you repeat the name of that documentary? The documentary is Kiss the Ground. Kick or kiss? Kiss. Kiss, kiss the ground, okay. Kiss the ground, yeah. Well, no, we've run out of time, but uh, this has been fascinating, and I really appreciate your uh, spending time with us today. So thank you. It was a pleasure, Jay. Okay. Our guest today has been Novas Whale. He's a Ph.D. candidate at UC San Diego, and he fell at Scripps Institute of Oceanography. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.